of my existence is pictured on the screen. Assembling furniture. I hate assembling furniture. I hate it. I can go into Ikea and I can admire all the beautiful furniture that's on the shelves and I can want every piece of it, but when it comes home and I have to assemble it, I can't stand it. In fact, the last two pieces of furniture that, that uh, Sarah obtained for our house, she assembled on her own because the first piece, that it, there was this bookcase for Leah's room and I just put it off so long that she finally did it. And then she bought another piece uh, for a bathroom that would, would uh, a, a shelf-type thing for the bathroom. And I told her before she brought it home, I ain't doing it. Let me explain. Now, that makes me sound like a horrible husband, and to a large degree, I am a horrible husband at times. But let me explain why. See, anytime you're assembling a piece of furniture, inevitably you're going to get to this point where you're almost done, and then you're going to discover that something went wrong. And you know what you have to do when that happens? You gotta take the whole thing apart and start all over again. You, you're gonna get to down to one of the last steps and you're gonna realize, oh, wait a second, I skipped this step and so I can't do this. And so you have to take the whole thing apart and start at the beginning. Or you're gonna get down to one of the last steps and you're gonna go, wait, that, I don't have that screw. I used that screw back here on this step because it looked like the screw I needed and now I've gotta take it apart, start at the beginning so that I have the, crew, the right screw at the right step. Or I remember years ago when Micah was born and I had to assemble all of that nursery furniture. And I was putting her crib together, and we're just, uh, you know, a couple weeks before she's going to be born when I'm getting this done, because as I've told you, I don't like putting furniture together. But here I am assembling this crib, and I'm getting down to the last step. And the holes, the manufactured holes don't line up. And so you know what I do? I'm like, oh, no, this has to be my fault. So I take it all apart. I start at the beginning. I do it again. Holes still don't line up. I take it all apart. Start at the beginning. Holes still don't line up. Now I've got to call the manufacturer and have them send me a new piece. It took them three tries to get the right piece sent to me so I could finally then assemble the whole thing and have it ready for Micah. I hate putting furniture together. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. But even though I despise that process, I do have to admit one thing that there is a valuable lesson to be found in it. Because sometimes going back to the beginning is the only way to ensure that you're doing things correctly. When it came to that furniture, sometimes you just have to disassemble it, go back to the beginning, and start all over to know that you're doing it the right way. And I reflected on that as I chose my first series of lessons for this new year. And I want to do that very thing. I want us to go back to the beginning to see what we can understand and learn and apply to our very lives. And so what we're going to do for the next few weeks is we're going to engage in a study of the book of Genesis. Not the whole book, don't worry, we're not going that long. We're going to focus on the first 11 chapters, the chapters that precede the Abraham story. Because the book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. In fact, the very word Genesis, that is the title of the book, means beginnings. 
And if you study the first 11 chapters, you'll discover that you come across the beginning of time, the beginning of marriage, the beginning of worship, the beginning of sin, the beginning of salvation. And many other beginnings will appear in those first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And the thing about those beginnings is that they all have a huge impact on our theology. And so if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to the very first chapter of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to start this study from the book of Genesis on beginnings. But since this theme we have for the new year is the theme 1, every lesson is going to center around the word one. And today's lesson is simply one week. Because Genesis chapter 1 presents one week. But not just any week. Genesis chapter 1 presents the very first week. Now, I understand that for the vast majority of you, I'm not saying anything you didn't already know. But I want you to consider the implications of this one week. This one week where we, we learned that on day one, God created light. And he separated that light from darkness and he called the light day, he called the darkness night. And then on day two, God separated the waters. Nope. He separated the waters. And in doing so, he created the heavens. That includes our atmosphere and the sky that is above us. That includes space. And then on day three, he separated the waters that were under the heavens by making dry land appear and sprouting vegetation all over that dry land. And then on day four, he created the great celestial beings, the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day five, he then filled the skies with birds and the seas with fish. And on day six, he then created those land animals, culminating ultimately with the creation of man. In one week, God did all of that. And that one week tells us so, mount, so much about what God did. Verb after verb after verb is mentioned in association with God's name in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 tells us that he created, he said, he saw, he separated, he called, he made, he set, he blessed. Genesis 1 is filled with descriptions of what God does. But what does this one week tell us about God? And what does this one week tell us about ourselves? Those are the questions I want to explore this morning because those are the questions that truly impact our theology. So let's start with that first question. What do we learn about God from this one week? I think the most important thing, and I'm only going to focus on one thing, is that God preceded the beginning. God was before the beginning. That's kind of a hard thing for our finite minds to 
wrap themselves around. But we need to comprehend this aspect of God's entity. See, when we turn to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now here's what we tend to do with this verse. We tend to focus on those last six words of the verse. We tend to focus on the creation aspect. And in particular, we do that because we are fighting a worldview that believes this is erroneous. And sometimes we tend to overlook the implications of the first half of this verse. And I want it to soak in right now, those first four words. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. That's all there was. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 clearly teaches us that God existed before the beginning. Even though this first chapter of Genesis is going to describe the beginning of our world, the beginning of time, the beginning of creation, the, the beginning of life, and the beginning of our history, nowhere does it tell us the beginning of God. Because there is no beginning with God. Do you know what that ultimately means, though? The fact that God has no beginning ultimately means that He is self-sufficient. That's not an attribute of God that we go into a lot of detail in talking about. We tend to focus on His omni-characteristics, His omnipotence, His omniscience, His omnipresence. But we need to understand and we need to appreciate and we need to worship God for his self-sufficiency just as much. Self-sufficiency is defined as needing no outside help and satisfying one's basic needs. Needing no outside help to satisfy one's basic needs. God is self-sufficient. When Paul stood before those philosophers in Athens, and use their polytheistic religious fervor as an entry point to introduce them to the one true God. He declared this in Acts chapter 17, verse 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul, in this passage as he stands before the most learned men of the day, points out that God doesn't have needs. We can't say that about ourselves. We all have needs. Have you ever heard of the rule of three? When it comes to survival, when it comes to living in the wilderness, when it comes to that sort of environment, and I hope Jay's paying attention, there's the rules of three. You can survive, give or take, three minutes without oxygen. It'd be a much faster for me. You can survive three hours in a harsh environment, whether it's extremely cold or extremely hot, for three hours without shelter. You can survive three days without water. And you can survive three weeks without food. Maybe more, depending on your size, right? 
The rule of three tells us this, that you and I have needs. We need oxygen to survive. We need shelter to survive. We need water and we need food to survive. But guess what? There is not a thing that God needs to survive. God is. And that's all there is to it. He needs nothing to exist. He needs nothing to operate. He needs nothing to survive. That is an amazing quality of God that is so often underappreciated. And the fact that God is self-sufficient means that he did not create the earth or the animals or even people because he needed us. God didn't initiate creation because he was lonely. Creation wasn't born out of his need for someone to love him. God didn't create the world and everything in it because of his vanity. Creation wasn't the result of his need to showcase his power to somebody. God didn't create all of this because he got bored one day and he thought, I need something to entertain me. That's not how creation came about. I think the best explanation as to why God created all of this, the best one that we can define without being blasphemous, is that he simply wanted to share his abundant magnificent love with someone. And when we accept God's self-sufficiency, it truly impacts our theology. See, God's self-sufficiency should lead to our acceptance of His divine prerogative. We should be willing to be dependent on His wisdom and His plan and His will simply because He alone is truly independent. He relies on no one and He relies on no thing that makes Him greater than everything found in creation. And here's the thing. If you don't believe God is self-sufficient, then you're not going to believe He is all-sufficient. Do you remember what Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 says? It's a very popular passage. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and what? All these things shall be added to you. Do you know what the, these things were that Jesus was talking about in that moment? He had just, in the Sermon on the Mount, he had just come off of talking about God's provisions. How God takes care of the birds. How God takes care of the flowers. How he makes sure the birds have something to eat and the flowers have something to wear. It was a provisions conversation that Jesus was having. And he says, if you seek God first, he'll take care of all your needs. But if you don't believe God is self-sufficient, if you don't believe that God needs nothing, then you're never going to believe that he's going to take care of your needs. You see, this one week, this beginning that starts with God affects your understanding of him so very much. 
and it affects your faith so very much. Because if you don't believe that he is the ultimate, then you're never going to believe that he has the solutions for your life. God is self-sufficient, and that means for your life, he will be all-sufficient. Do you truly believe that? If you do, it's going to change the way you approach any and every situation. It's going to change the way, it's going to change your attitude in any and every situation. It's going to change the way you talk to people. It's going to change the priorities in your life. Because if he is the all-sufficient one, then he should have all of your attention. That's what we learn about God from this one week. But what do we learn about ourselves from this one week? I think the most important thing we can learn about ourselves is that we were made to represent God on earth. Now, you may be a little confused because I'm talking about representing God, but there's a statue of Caesar on the screen. No, he's not God. But his statue is useful. You see, back in ancient Rome, emperors were notorious for having statues or busts of them made and placed all throughout the Roman Empire. Do you realize how big the Roman Empire got at its height? According to estimates that I was able to find uh, in that expert scholarly database known as Google, The Roman Empire covered two and a half million miles of territory during its heyday. Now, the emperor is stationed in Rome, and he's got citizens, to use that term in its most broad sense possible. He's got subjects, that would be the better word, spread over three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa, all around the Mediterranean Sea. And he doesn't have an airplane to get him there. He doesn't have an automobile to get him there. He doesn't have the internet to get him there. So what's the best strategy he has for ensuring those subjects remember that he's in charge? It's to erect statues of himself, to make himself visible in their communities. There's a, a, a cut-off head of Emperor Hadrian in London that on one of his visits to Great Britain, he had installed in a public area of London while he was building Hadrian's Wall across Great Britain because he wanted even those islanders, if you will, to know who was in charge. See, Roman emperors would use statues to remind their subjects that they're in their territory. And I think that might be the best human equivalent to understanding what God does. 
See, if you go to Genesis chapter 1, you may have noticed that the text repeatedly states that God made all the living things according to their kind. He made the plants and the trees according to their kinds. He made the birds and the fish according to their kind. Then he made man. But if you look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, he doesn't make man according to its kind. He, in essence, makes man according to his kind. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then in verse 27, we're told that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So as God completed creation, he created an image bearer. He made man his image bearer. He made man to be a creature that would possess his likeness on earth. In essence, we became the statues. Human beings became the statues showing creation that it was under the jurisdiction of God. That unique attribute of being an image bearer, God instilled in humans. No other creature in all of creation can lay claim to the image of God. That's what makes us so remarkably different. But there's something else worth noting in the creation account. And that's what the text says God saw at the conclusion of every day of creation. After he made light, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 4 says, God saw the light was good. After he made the land and the seas, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 10 says, God saw that it was good. After God made all the vegetation that grows on the earth, Genesis 1.12 says God saw that it was good. After he made the sun, the moon, and the stars, Genesis chapter 1 and 18 says God saw that it was what? I, I made this easy for you. God saw that it was what? There we go. After God made the birds and the fish, Genesis 1.21 says that God saw that it was and after God made all the animals that inhabit the land, Genesis 1.25 says God saw that it was good. Now typically when we say that someone or something is good, we're referencing morality. But is that really the way that good is being used here in Genesis chapter 1? Do you think that when God declared the stars good, he was saying that they were kind to the planets? Or when God declared the trees good, do you think he was indicating that they were honest with the animals? I, I don't think good here is a reference to morality. In fact, Greek philosophers, we know that Greek philosophers would use good in a different understanding. That sometimes good is used to reference the fact that something is doing what it's supposed to do. You see, when God declared that his creation was good, he was indicating that it was doing what he designed it to do. And what was creation designed to do? Psalm chapter 19 and verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3, Isaiah tells us about a vision he has. And in verse 3, he says this about the angels who gathered around the throne. He says, 
that they were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. See, the purpose of all creation is to bring glory to God. Everything He made has that purpose. And the Greek term translated glory refers to weightiness. It reveals or it means that God is to carry the most weight. In other words, glory means that, that God is heavy, not light. And creation was designed to show that. Think about Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. It's a very passage that says that God's creation reveals some things about him. It reveals his eternal power. Creation points literally to God because it's showing off his glory. And here's the thing. Humans were especially made for that purpose. We've already noted that six times God looked at his creation and saw that it was but after he created the man and the woman, God looked at his creative work and said this in Genesis 1.31. He said that it was very good. I find that fascinating. It's as if God looks at everything he made and said, man, this is good. But something was missing. And then he creates these beings in his own likeness, and it tipped the scales and it's no longer good, it's very good. We're the crown jewel of his creation. We're the very piece that tipped the scales from good to very good. We're the best part of it. And I don't think it's wrong to claim that. Did we mess it up? Absolutely. But we're the only ones made in his image. And we're the ones after which he was forced to look at his creation and then change his, his adjective and transfer from good to very good. And I think that means that we are uniquely designed to showcase the glory of God. In fact, there's another passage in Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7, particularly as God is talking about the children of Israel. And he says that those he has called by his name, the nation of Israel, whom he created for his glory there in verse 7. God declares in Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7 that he created man for his glory. That was the purpose Now notice he's specifically talking here about the children of Israel, the people he has called by his name. Now think about yourself. Seated here among the believers. Seated here with the church that Jesus Christ paid for with his own blood. Listening in online. You may be a member of the body of Christ or you may not be. But I think the implication there is that especially those 
who are called by his name, who are part of his family, who are his children. They especially are here to bring glory to him. And I think Scripture speaks to that. Because as God's image bearers, we exist to point the world toward him by giving him the glory. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 31, Paul said, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, we need to understand that we're here for His glory. That understanding should so affect us that it changes what we think about. That it changes the decisions we make. That it changes the words we speak. That it changes the attitudes we show. It changes the relationships we form. It changes the places we go. It changes the activities we engage in. All because we understand that we're here to point toward Him. To give Him the glory. And if you don't believe you are made for God's glory, then you're going to live for your own. Someone's going to get the glory. It's your job to decide who. And your future is determined by who you decide is going to get the glory. I want to close by appealing to an illustration that I've used a number of times before, but the Middletons weren't here, so that's five that I get to do this for. I want you to consider just for a moment, are you a microscope or are you a telescope? Here's the difference. Both of these tools serve for magnifying things. You would use either one of these to magnify something that is too small for you to see. The difference between them is that a microscope is going to magnify something that is incredibly small in comparison to you. And it's going to help you see that object that is so very near to you, but so very small in relation to you. And at the same time, what it's going to do it's going to make you feel bigger. The telescope does the exact opposite. The telescope is going to magnify something that seems so small, but is actually quite large in comparison to you. It's just really far away. And in the process of doing that, that telescope is going to make you feel smaller. Both tools are going to magnify something, but only one of them is going to miniaturize 
the observer. Can you guess which one we need to be? As God's image bearers, as the ones on this earth meant to bring glory to Him, it's our responsibility to magnify Him while miniaturizing ourselves. Isn't that what John the Baptist declared? He must increase and I must what? Decrease. So the question of the day is, are you fulfilling your telescopic responsibility? Because that's something we learn from that one week, that we're here to make much about God. Does your life reflect that? In just a moment, you're going to leave here. Probably going to go get lunch somewhere. Possibly going to be around some people. Will you be making much of God in that moment? Tomorrow you may be going to school. You may be going to work. You may be just joining some community opportunity, whether it be walking with some neighbors in the neighborhood or joining in some community organization somewhere. Or since it is a federal holiday, you might just be sitting at home with your family. In whatever situation you will be in, will you make much of God? By the end of this week, who will be glorified by the life that you have lived? God or you? See, that one week matters quite a bit. Because that one week makes us analyze ourselves and whether or not we're fulfilling our purpose. And so I challenge you today to make your purpose count. If you're here today and you've never become a child of God, that opportunity is available. If you'll confess that Jesus Christ is his risen son, if you'll repent of your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, the blood of Jesus will wash them away. You'll be cleansed. You'll be made anew. You'll have a new beginning. But there may be some here today who have made that decision and they've donned that new, that new self but somewhere along the way chose to return to the old one. And you need a fresh start today too. Whatever your need might be, we're here because we want to help you begin anew. Won't you come while together we stand and sing?
recall. Our closing hymn this morning will be Our God He is Alive. In 523, we'll sing the first and fourth stanza. Thank you for being this morning. For those who are visiting with us, we'll actually stick around for a moment that we may greet you and maybe make this home your home. Our God He is Alive. First and fourth stanza. There is beyond the earth for bringing us together. First, remember the sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross for us. To think of what he does for us and the assurance that we have through him for eternity. As we leave, please help each of us and sustain us in trials and in opportunities and help us to serve to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.